Well, if you would, take out the Word of God and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26 this morning. If you have a phone, a tablet, whatever you have, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20 through verse 26. And here at Ashland, we stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word. And we do that because, and you can go ahead and stand, uh, because we believe that the Bible is God's perfect Word. We, we don't believe this is some fairy tale. We don't believe it's words in an ancient book that have no meaning for our life now. We believe these are the words of God. These are the words of Christ our King to us, the one who will rule and reign forever, the one who is back from the dead. And we stand to hear Him speak to us. Hear the Word of Christ. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip, they went to tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Oh God, I pray that these words would pierce us today as we talk about a cross and we talk about a resurrection. God, would we see it as an invitation to come die with Jesus. To come die so that we might truly live. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's like you were dead and now you're alive. These words hang over probably, the more I've thought about it, the worst decision that I've ever made as a leader or a pastor. And I made them three weeks ago in Peru. I was waiting along with three of our college students to, to leave Peru after we had been there a week, and I just started joking around and telling stories about the horror that it would be to lose your passport in another country. Now, I was joking about it, talking about John Crest videos on Facebook. And I looked over and I realized that this wasn't a joke for Daniel Montavo. Because he began to frantically pour out all of his bags in front of us. And he began to look through, through everything that he had. And he wasn't going to tell me, but I, I understood what was going on. He had no clue where his passport was. And this soon led to Daniel, Megan Farley, Rachel Prangy, and myself sprinting up and down uh, the airport there in Lima, Peru, in and out of stores, uh, on bathroom floors, looking for Daniel's passport. 
And we looked for about an hour and a half, I would say, right up till the moment we were going to get on the plane. And I made the worst decision, I think, as a pastor that I've ever made. I decided I would leave Daniel in Peru. <laughs> and I'm going to give you seven reasons why. First of all, he told me to. Second of all, he speaks Spanish. I don't. I was no use to him in Peru. I couldn't send the girls back to travel alone. He was in literally the safest part of Peru he could be in. Past security, before exiting the country, nothing was going to happen to him there. The cost of getting more than one of us back to the United States, that, that was something I thought about. If just two of us had missed the flight, or, or more than one of us. We did have missionaries in the country, and I have a wife and six kids who were waiting for me. <laughs> now, to be honest, I only thought of like one or two of those in the moment. <laughs> I was much more selfish that night, but I've reasoned with myself that it would have been okay to leave him that night there in Peru. So we hugged Daniel like we were never going to see him again. <laughs> and the girls were crying. They, they say they weren't. They were. Megan's watching on Facebook. You were crying. And I headed to the plane. And I began to second guess this decision. But I, I really had left him because I walked out of the, the airport. I wasn't coming back. I'd left him in Peru. And I began to second guess that decision. And, and I began to think, could I get fired for this? It, this is a part of my job, and I, I'm probably doing a bad job right now. I thought, what am I going to tell his parents? How am I going to explain this to his parents? I left your son in Peru. It was his fault, but I did leave him in Peru. <laughs> and just to top it all off, if you remember the, the moment before uh, we left to go to Peru, if you were here that Sunday, the sermon was on going and finding the one lost sheep. <laughs> and here I had left one sheep in Peru. I took him all the way to Peru to leave him there. And so I, I went to sit down on the plane in my seat. And I turned and I looked. And I saw the most glorious sight I could have seen in that moment. And that was Daniel walking onto the plane. And it was as if the heavens had opened up. And I thought in that moment, though, that he had snuck on the plane. I, 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 and I began to say, what are you doing? And he said, I found it. And, and as we were running up and down the airport, some girl just out of nowhere saw him and walked up to him and said, did you lose your passport? Yes, and handed him his passport. And I told him, that person no longer exists. That wasn't a real person. That was an angel from heaven. <laughs> and, and in those moments, uh, I, I, I've never gone from just, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, to, oh man, this is great. And I thought Daniel would be excited to be on the plane, but when he got to his seat, he sat down and just wept uncontrollably for like 30 minutes. And, and Daniel hates flying. He was scared to death. We nearly had to drug him to get him on a plane. 
And, and Megan Farley looked at him and said, Daniel, I bet you've never been so glad to be on a plane as he just wept out of, out of sheer joy and relief. And that's when Megan Farley said, Daniel, it was like you were dead and now you're alive again. And we all have those moments in life where, where we are devastated by news, where, where we don't know what we're going to do, where we almost feel dead inside. And then the phone rings. And then there's the notification. And then the wa doctor walks into the room and tells us it's not as bad as we thought. Here's some good news. And it changes our life. And that's what Easter is all about. Because Easter is the moment in which the world was dead and hopeless in despair and sin and cursed by death. And Easter is the good news, not just like you were dead and now you're alive, but we were dead and now we're alive. And we see this good news in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, as Jesus is preparing, he, he's preparing for his final hours. And he's in Jerusalem. And this is a time of festivity. There's great excitement in the city. People have traveled from all over. They've taken their family vacations there. It's Passover week. There are cookouts. There are, there, there are families who are having reunions. Uh, it's like Derby week. It's like speed weeks at Daytona if you're a NASCAR fan. This is a great week. This is, this is a week of excitement. This is a week of, uh, of festivity. And there are all kinds of people in Jerusalem. And notice verse 20. Now among them who went up to worship at the temple, at the feast, were some Greeks, some Gentiles. There were Gentiles who practiced Judaism, who have made their way into the city. And we see these Gentiles, they want to find Jesus of Nazareth. You, you see at this time, after three years, Jesus had become a very prominent figure. Jesus' status was almost celebrity-like. People from all over had heard of this itinerant preacher who preached with great authority. He preached with great power. He performed miracles. And he talked about this kingdom that was going to come into the world and overthrow all other kingdoms. And many looked to Jesus as a hero. Oh, He can be our king, the outcast thought. Many of the Jews thought, yeah, He can topple Rome for us. And, and, and the religious authorities had heard about Him and they were furious with Him. The Roman government had heard about Him and they were furious with Him. And, and a lot of people in Jerusalem are, are hearing His name and they begin to look for Him. And these Gentiles, they, they come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And, and as of late, they've even heard this crazy story that Jesus had raised someone from the dead. And so people want to see Him for all sorts of reasons. And so these Greeks, they come to Philip. Philip was nearly a hand-picked disciple by Jesus. He looked for Philip and called him to himself. Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee, this backwood town, and he had followed Jesus, and he was known for introducing people to Jesus. And they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now they want to sit down for coffee. They want to sit down and have a meal with him and just, just get to know this 
fascinating figure. And they go to Philip. But then Philip went to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And we see a shift in what's going on with Jesus. There is fear among these two disciples because they know folks are looking to kill Him. And before in the story, Philip and Andrew are those who are saying, come see Jesus. We want to introduce you to Jesus. Andrew and Philip are introducing one another to Jesus. And even Peter, the Apostle Peter, is introduced to Jesus by these two men. But now they're a little skeptical. Why do you want to see Jesus? What's going on? The Jews are plotting to kill Him. There are folks who want to destroy His life. Why do you want to see Jesus? In verse 23, Jesus answered them. And He says, The hour is coming for the Son of Man to be glorified. We see a pattern here. Before, there are folks that are running out and introducing people to Jesus. And now there's Jesus moving from this very public ministry to a private ministry. And He's telling His disciples, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Oh, they're going to see Me. They're going to see me glorified. They're going to see my glory made known. This term, Son of Man, it it is a title that is designated to God's King. We see it in the book of Daniel. God's King is going to be like a holy mountain. This Son of Man, the one God has given to rule over men. And He says, the hour has come. He is moving toward the crucifixion for the Son of Man to be glorified. The word glorified, it comes from the word gravity or weight. And what Jesus says here is my weight, my gravity is about to be displayed for the world. The world is about to see my glory. But what does he mean by that? Up until this point when Jesus has talked about his glory, he's also tied it to an Old Testament story where the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness and they're being snake-bitten. And many of them are dying. And God tells Moses, take a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And everyone who looks to that snake, they will be healed. This snake, this curse on a pole. And Jesus says this, In the same way, the Son of Man will be high and lifted up. And so when He says, the hour has come for Me to be glorified, in their minds, the disciples see a cursed pole. They are to see a cursed pole. Jesus says, the hour is coming where just like the snake in the wilderness was lifted up as a curse, I will be high and lifted up like a curse. Men and I will draw all men to myself. That's what it means here when Jesus says, The hour has come for me to be glorified. And he says, You're going to see me, they're going to see me. All of these people in the city who are who are looking for me, oh, they're about to see me, and they're not going to have to search to find me because I'm going to be lifted up, not on a throne, but lynched at the city dump. And if they want to find me, that's where they'll find me. And if you want to find me, that's where you'll find me. You see, the problem we have with this way in which Jesus talks about glory, He talks about being glorified at the cross. One of the problems that we have with it is Him being lifted up in glory proves to us that we have no glory. 
Do you understand that's what the cross says to you? Jesus says on the cross, this is me being glorified. And we say, how is that being glorified? Well, on the cross, Jesus is proving He is the only one who can die for your sins. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is an infinite Savior. But you know what the cross says about us? The cross says we are infinitely sinful. And so when Jesus says, I'm about to be glorified, I'm about to display my glory, what He's going to do is also display for us our sinfulness. Do you realize on the cross that it was your sin that was lifted up, writhing in agony and in pain? Do you realize when Jesus talks about glory that it was your sin that was lifted up, screaming out in pain and agony till He couldn't scream anymore? Do you realize the hideous nature of the cross is the hideous nature of your sin? Snake-bitten by sin, bloated with the curse of death on a pole. God is saying that's what your sin looks like. God is saying this is what my glory looks like. And so if you're here today on Easter, now's not the time to hide from glory. It's not the time to hide your sin. Today's the day you admit your sin because God is already out at you. He's already put you on blast in killing His Son for you. And instead of covering your sin up today, some of you come in here today and you have all kinds of excuses of why you've done what you've done. It's someone else's fault. This was just my life situation. This is just the hand I I was dealt. And you come in here today and you have all kinds of excuses. Today's the day to stop doing that because God has stopped doing that on the cross. He says, no, you're sinful. And so you come in here today and you say, I am the scoundrel that everybody's talking about. That's me. You know me from high school. Yeah, I'm still that scoundrel. I am still the one who's done all... By the way, you may have certain stories about me that there are some falsehoods associated with. Let me tell you something. The truth about myself is worse than any story you could ever make up. Cursed on a pole. The infinite Savior proving that you are an infinite sinner. And that's okay to admit today. Some of us are in that conflict because we don't want to admit it. And we're in that turmoil. I don't want to say I'm that bad. Oh, there's freedom in saying it. Because God does not hide the cross from you. You can't hide your sin from Him. And for all who would come in here today and say, yes, it's all true. I am who, who you say I am. I've done, what, I've done worse than you could say that I've done. God says this right back at you. Yes, and I am who I say I am. And look what I've done for you. Because the cross says to you, you're a sinner. And the cross says to you today that God hates your sin. But you know what else the cross says to you? I hate your sin this much, but I love you this much. Oh, if you would believe in the glory of the cross today just by admitting who you are, admitting your sin, there is glory for you. For the one who would trust in Jesus, they will be lifted up and glorified with Him. And that's exactly what He talks about in verse 24. Notice He says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, He draws them in with a very firm, Hey, listen to me. Look at me. We've been talking about high and lifted up. You're wondering what's going on in the city? Listen to me. I'm going to explain it to you. Look me in the eyes. And he says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He talks about a grain of wheat all of a sudden. Almost parabolic here. And he says a seed has to go into the ground and begin to decay. A seed has to go into the ground and die so it can germinate into a greater crop. It goes into the ground and humidity cracks it open. It goes into the ground and roots and life begin to grow from this seed. If it remains on top of the ground, it's useless. If it remains in the bag, it's useless. It does nothing. It's alone. And yet the seed that goes into the ground and dies and begins to decay produces life. And he tells them, that's what you're about to see. The Son of Man is going to be high and lifted up like a curse, but the Son of, Son of Man is going to be planted in the ground like a seed, cracked open for life for you. And that, that's what we see on Good Friday. We, we see Jesus is glorified. He's lifted up. And His body is broken. And it's taken from the cross in this unrecognizable, bloody mess. And they take it over to a first century funeral home to a man named Joseph. And he begins to, to wipe this limp, cold, dead body that had so many scars, so many bruises, so many lacerations, and they had so little time as they wiped the body, it just turned red. It would have been impossible to get all the blood off of his body. And they take the body and they wrap it up in grave cloths and they put it in the ground. And there it is cracked open and dead. And three days later, there's the thump. In the cold, silent tomb, there's the thump of a heart. And warm blood begins to push through a stiffening body. And muscles that were sore from a crucifixion, an execution, hanging on the cross, trying to grasp for breath, they are filled with blood. And they are given energy. And they are able to move. And brain waves are excited. And eyelids matted with blood begin to open up. And he moves his feet onto the concrete floor. Probably a little cold. And he breathes in. Cold air across the sore throat. And he stands up. And he walks out of a first century coffin. The Lord Jesus has been broken. He has been cracked open. And He has provided life for us from His tomb. And it grows and it spreads across the globe. 
There are people in Africa, Hamar people today, who are gathered for Easter Sunday and they believe their sins are forgiven and they experience life from the tomb. There are people in Richmond, Kentucky packed into a warehouse today singing weird songs about someone who was dead, who is now alive, and his heart beats and there is life that is spreading throughout even this city right before us. There is life that is moved from a first century tomb all the way to 21st century here in this room as we gather around a risen and exalted King. And and you know because He got out of the ground? There's a promise to you that you'll experience this eternal life. Because there's a day coming where Jesus will break the world as we know it, open up like a seed. And He will put His foot down And there are catacombs in Afghanistan that that will be crushed and people will get up and walk out of them. There are grown over cemeteries in Will, Tennessee that my relatives who believed in Jesus will get up and walk out of on the day Jesus returns. This is the life He has provided for us. And it's weird and it's crazy and it doesn't make any sense to us. But it's real and it's true. And we invite you to believe it today. You see, you come in here and you have in your mind your greatest problems, your ACT score. You have in your mind your greatest problems. What am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make money? Is she going to marry me? Is he going to ask me to marry me? How is all of that going to work out for me? And you have all of these anxieties. You have all of these problems. Your marriage is in disarray. Your kids are rebellious. You you don't know how you're going to make it. You have your greatest problems before you. And whatever you would put... Before us today is your greatest problem. If it's not sin and death, it's not your greatest problem. It's not. I'm here to tell you that your greatest problem has already been solved in Jesus. I'm here to tell you that God may not fix your ACT score no matter how many times you take that test. I'm here to tell you God may not make your kids obedient. And it may take God to do it for some of them. It will. But it may, He may not. Your marriage may not get better. I can't give you a tip to fix any of that. But I can give you good news that your sins can be forgiven. I can give you good news that if you follow Jesus today, the most relevant thing that could be said today is that Though you may die, be placed in the ground, as Jesus says, you won't see death. You'll be raised up to live with Him and you will come from your casket, your tomb, your coffin the same way He did. That there is good news for you here today. If you would believe in Jesus, your greatest problems have been solved. When you believe in Him, you are accepted as if you've never sinned. When you follow Him, you're given hope that you'll be raised from the dead. And then Jesus says, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Now the word love here is just, it's to be committed to your life at all costs. This is all that matters to me. I'm committed to to my life. And he says, if you're just committed to your life, you will lose it. It will be taken from you. It will be like a vapor. It's no longer there. You can't find it. If you are clinging to your life and your life only, one day it will be like sand in your hand. 
It'll disappear. It'll be gone. But notice he says, whoever hates his life, comparatively speaking, you look at your life and you say it's not, not the most important thing. And notice he clarifies here. Notice these words. His life in this world. You see, that's important for some of us because we are very committed to now. And we, we would never say this is heaven, but we live like this is heaven. And we want it all now. We want it all in the moment. We want, we want this life to just be a little bit better than it is. You know, just, just let me pay my bills. I really like it here. Just make it just a little bit better. And, and he says, if you're committed to that, at the end of the day, you'll have no life because this world is not all there is. There is something bigger and better and more glorious. And that's why he says, whoever hates his life will keep it for eternity. If you're willing to let go of what's in front of you, you're, you're willing to see one who died and has been raised and will give you an eternal kingdom, is that's what you live for, you will experience life now and forever. The point here is his life is what produces life for you. Forgiveness of sin, a resurrection accepted by God. Your life, you've got to believe this, is what has produced for you the most difficulty. Your desires. Your sin has alienated you from God. Your sin has earned you death and eternal death. You can't cling to your life. And he says you've got to let go of it so that you might be forgiven of sin and accepted by God. You've got to lose your life before God. You can't come before God clinging to your life saying, look at all I've done, God. Look at all I've done. I mean, compared to other people, look how good I am. Compared to my ex, I'm great. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she did to me? Compared to my coworkers, have you seen their post on Facebook? It's Easter weekend. Can you believe what they've done all weekend? I mean, compared to other people, I, I am nearly perfect. And God says, you can't do it that way. The reality is, if God gave you a million lives in hell, you would never pay the sin debt that you owe Him. He is infinitely perfect. And when you sin against infinite perfection, you're an infinite sinner. And if He gave you a million lives, you would never work up a good enough goodness to pay Him back. But here's the good news. You don't have to. If you'd stop clinging to your life. And we know this experientially. If, if we would just sit down and admit that my life is what's caused me the most pain. My desires are what have ruined my life. I can look back over my life and see a path of destruction that I have caused. And my desires and what I want in my life, it continues to be this black hole where there's no end to it, but I keep pursuing it. I think something here, I think something within me is going to satisfy me. It's going to satisfy God. And it is this mirage in the desert and it only leaves us empty. You see, when you make your life the center of the world, all it does is lift it up and show all the flaws that you have. Why would you want to put your life on center stage? When you make yourself the center, all you keep doing is proving that you can't do it. 
You have flaws. What you want is empty. It doesn't make sense. Your wisdom doesn't compute correctly. It never works out the way you want. And what God is proving to you today is you're not Jesus. You're not Jesus. There's only one Jesus. Let go of your life and embrace His life. And here he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Literally, if anyone would, would slave for me, become my servant, he must come with me. And that's a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Christ. We serve Him by being with Him. Notice, follow me. This is the call. You see today? I don't want to ask if you're a Christian. That's not my question to you today. Because a lot of people say they're Christians. Because their name's on a church roll. Or, or they just associate with Christian values. What I want to ask you today is, do you believe in Jesus and are you following Him? Are you following with Jesus? And what that means is you're with Jesus. You go to be with Him. He said, if anyone serves Me, they follow Me. And where I am, there that My servant will also be. You come to be with Him. And if anyone serves Me, the Father will honor Him. The point Jesus makes here is if you want to be with Me, I'm found serving. If you want to be with Me, follow Me. And you know what the disciples heard when He said, follow Me over and over? He says, in three days, or in just a few days, I'm going to Jerusalem and the religious leaders, they're going to they're capture Me and they're going to kill Me. And He says, and if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, follow Me. What He literally says is, let's go die. If you, if you want to be a part of Me, let's go die. I'm going to die, and if you are one of my servants, you must be willing to die also. And he paints a picture here of joy and honor from the Father by making our life about Jesus, by making our life about others, by not making our life about ourselves. You see, the Bible tells us that in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness of joy, as we heard read earlier. To be with Jesus, you will have the most joy. But what Jesus says here is if you're going to be with me, you're going to think less about you. And you're going to think more about me and others. And so that's how happiness is pursued. Letting go of your life, thinking more about Jesus. When you think more about Jesus, you naturally think about others. And the closer you are to Jesus, the more you will be found serving others. One of the radical things the Gospel does in our heart is it moves us from the center and it puts Jesus there, which naturally means we begin to look at others and go, how does this affect you? Hold on, let's talk about you. To your spouse, I, I want to serve you somehow in this situation. I want to make sure life is easier for you. When there's a conflict, you begin to ask, what have I done wrong? Not, let me tell you what you've done wrong. No, what have I done wrong? You begin to think about others as more important than yourself. And one of the radical things that Jesus calls us to do is love our enemies. And some of us here today, we think about our enemies, we think about those people who have done the most wrong to us, and we say, there's no way I can love them. Yes, there is, if you let go of your life. If you lose your life and you're willing to die with Jesus, you can love your enemies because that's who Jesus died for. 
And so you go to your enemies and you say, how can I be merciful to you? Oh, you've wounded me. How can I forgive you? No, my goal here is to show you grace and mercy by forgiving you. You let go of your life and Jesus becomes the center and you begin to serve others. You see, God has designed the world to be about Jesus, not about you. And notice the honor He talks about here. The closer you are to Jesus, the less life will be about your honor. You'll begin to wake up in the morning and say, it's not about me being cool today. It's not about my name. This whole Jesus thing's weird anyway. One of the things that we have to do as followers of Christ nowadays is make sure people really believe that this is weird, this is strange. Yes, we believe in massive boats and rain for 40 days. We believe that the Red Sea split and it was like concrete so God's people could walk across. We believe it's the story in the uh, Old Testament where the sun actually stopped and the day actually stopped because God wanted it to. We believe that there was one who was born of a virgin and that, that doesn't make sense. We don't even know... At, 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 at the bottom of all that, we don't even know how to explain it except He's 100% man, 100% God. We believe that He never sinned. We believe that He lived a perfect life. We believe that, he, that God could actually die. How does that happen? How does that happen? How do you explain that? And we believe three days later, He was raised from the dead. And it's not a Marvel comic. It's real. It's real. And it makes you weird and it makes you awkward and it's embarrassing at times to say, no, I really believe this. Oh, you, you think my personality's strange? Oh, wait till you hear what I believe in this book. And he says, the one who is willing to embrace this freakishness will receive honor from the Father. And, and, and in Christ, we have the freedom to do that. Because for the Christian here today, we can say, I've already been crucified. And there's freedom to let go of your life. You're wondering, how do I... Man, I hate who I am because I'm so committed to myself. How do I let go of it? Well, you say today, I've been crucified in Christ. I've already been dressed up in purple. I've been paraded through... You can't make fun of me any worse than what's already happened. I, I was called a fake king, spat upon, humiliated by the Roman government, humiliated by the Jews. I was pierced through on two pieces of wood and lifted up as this fake, artificial, nothing, powerless king. Oh, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? That's already happened to you. The worst thing has already happened to you. You've already been crucified. You've already been separated from God. And here's another question. What else do you have to gain? You're so committed to yourself, so committed to your life. What do you have to really gain in this life? What is it? That one thing, if you could just have, it could just be made right for you. And you get it, and then you want that next thing, and the next thing. What do you have to gain? Oh, in Christ, you have it all to gain. The tomb's empty. There was a Good Friday that was really bad. But there was an Easter Sunday that was really good. Oh, and you have it all in Him. When you believe in Him, what do you have to lose? What do you have to gain by being so committed to yourself? Because in Jesus, 
It's like you were dead and now you're alive. No, you were dead and now you're alive. Let's pray.